Okay, thank you, Amy. Uh, and uh, lots of thank yous here and, and uh, points to make before we start. So first of all, thank you to Valerie and Stephen for hosting us. Um, it's really beautiful to be here. It's a beautiful, beautiful home, but it's made that much more beautiful by using it for Torah, for mitzvot, for bringing people together. Um, and uh, you're really such tremendous supporters of the yeshiva in every which way. Um, and you're active participants and partners in, in so much of what we do. So it's really special to be able to be here and share some Torah uh, leading up to Rosh Hashanah. So thank you very much for that. I have to point out, I think it's very important for us to point out, that um, this class is really part of a lot of Torah learning that has taken place uh, under the auspices of the yeshiva throughout the summer in a variety of different forms. And all of that learning was sponsored in memory uh, of our dear graduate uh, Jack Charles Levy, Alava Shalom. Uh, so we, we keep him in mind and, and uh, all the learning and all the brachot that we make uh, in his memory. Uh, we also want to make sure that uh, we mention that tonight's class is, uh, is also uh, dedicated in memory of Elliot Stein, Alava Shalom, Eliezer Ben Aviva, I think if I got that right. So uh, the, all the, the brachot and the class and everything, Lilui uh, Nishmato. So let's keep that in mind as well. I also want to say, um, it is a happy 30th anniversary to Stephen and Amy. Uh, that was not on the... Uh, I, I, they, no one told me to say it. Um, only Amy will schedule a class for Flatbush on her anniversary. Like, that's a, that's a very special thing. But, uh, so I hope I could live up to that. That's uh, not so easy. But uh, thank you very much. And, and Mabruk and inshallah many, many, many more years together. Happiness, health, and, uh, and, and serving the community, the yeshiva, and, and everything to that. So uh, to, to get down to business, you know, uh, teachers like to tell a joke, which is not such a joke, right? Which is, what's the two best parts of being a teacher? Right? And anyone know? July and August, right? Those are, the, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, by the time you get to August 18th, we're already, we're kind of towards the end of the summer, right? And um, that's great for teachers, and we're already getting back to, getting set to get back to school, um, which is not what I want to talk about. But uh, at the beginning of school every year, we also have the high holidays. And uh, that's really where we're going to be focused on tonight. And when we talk about the high holidays, I think everyone loves the high holidays. Um, we like being together in the, in, the, in the synagogue, in the shul, in the Bet Knesset. Um, I think there's certain particular styles of prayer and tunes and, and a feel um, there's the certain types of meals that we have around the holidays. It's, it's nice, right? It, it's, it's very special. But when you think about Rosh Hashanah, right, which is, again, the new year, um, you have to ask a very simple question, uh, which is, what's wrong with us? Right? And, and let me explain what I mean. Uh, look at any culture in the world, really any culture in the world, and look at how they observe a new year. And I actually spent some time on Google this week. Right? And just about any, any culture that I could find all have the same observance of new year. And what is it? A party. Right? They celebrate. Right? Everyone celebrates. That's what they do. Right? The, the, we, America's in Times Square. I found a pretty cool one. The Greeks uh, feel that New Year's is a very uh, fortunate time. So they play cards because they think they're going to win. Right? They're playing against each other, so I don't really see how that works. Right? But this is, it's, a, it's a certain idea at the beginning of a new year is we celebrate. 
and just about every culture celebrates at the beginning of a new year. Not us. Right? Our new year is very, very different. Our new year is called, right, it's part of what we call Yamim Noraim. Right? And Yamim Noraim means the days of Nora means awe, right? reverence. Right? It means a, like a little bit scary. Right? The, the alternative word for Nora is Pahad. Right? And uh, it seems a little strange that we should start a year with this concept of awe and with the concept which we know, which goes along with it, which is Teshuvah. And the question is, why do we start the year that way? Right? Why, why, uh, it's very, you want to tell me Teshuvah is important? Great. Tuck it away in somewhere else. Right? Put it uh, at Pesach. Put it uh, in January. Why do I need Teshuvah at the beginning of the year? That, that is the question that I want to deal with. And to sharpen the question, I want to say, and it's not like we're not capable of celebration. Because just two weeks after the start of the new year, we have the holiday of Sukkot, which more than any holiday over the course of the year is filled with Simcha. So why couldn't we have just like timed it just a little bit? It's, it's, it fits. And all the things that we could say about Sukkot, it's two weeks before. You could say it on Rosh Hashanah. Why do we observe Rosh Hashanah the way that we do? That's my question for tonight. Um, I'd like to provide some answers and then maybe a takeaway or two. So, as you would imagine, this question is not only my question, it's a question that's been asked by others before me. Um, and I want to look at a very particular and important Jewish thinker and how he attacked the problem and uh, see what we can learn from him. And the person that I'm talking about is someone that we should all know well, and I suspect for a few reasons we don't know as well as we should. The person I'm talking about is someone named Rav Cook. How many of you have heard of Rav Cook? Show of hands. Good. A lot of people. That's great. Um, Rav Cook is pretty much the original Zionistic rabbi in Israel. Right? Now, there, was, there were plenty of people that believed in what we would call Zionism that lived outside of Israel and aspired to be in Israel. But Rav Cook, who was born in Russia, born in Latvia, trained in Lithuania, moved to what was then Palestine and uh, became a rabbi there. And in that place was very, very Zionistic and very, very creative and dynamic, so much so that a lot of the other rabbis viewed him with a lot of suspicion. They weren't really sure, hey, who is this guy? What's he saying? Some of them even burned his books. But it's because he was so great that he was so misunderstood, and because he's so challenging and difficult to read and understand that a lot of people maybe have heard of him but don't know what to make of him. So I want to look at what Rav Cook had to say about this question of why start the year with days of seriousness, days of awe, days of introspection, days of teshuvah. Why not tuck it away somewhere else and celebrate the beginning of a new year like everybody else? So he says two points that you have to keep in mind. He says the first thing that he says is you have to understand the nature of time itself. And again, Rev. Cook is an interesting thinker, and he's going to take things apart. So what does he say? Understand the nature of time. He says, if you look at time you'll understand that time has no break. Time has no cycle. Time just flows. Time is just, boom, it's moving all the time. You're never going to come back to a point in time. He says, in fact, um, well, he doesn't say this, but uh, there's a very famous uh, Greek philosopher named Heraclitus who says a person never steps into the same river twice. It's a philosophical idea. The river is constantly moving. 
so is time. Time is just moving. The idea of a cycle in time, the idea of uh, a minute, an hour, even a second, even any measurement of time is actually a human construct. We take our brains and we, we kind of interpret time. Right? And, and we make of it what we make. Um, and the, the truth is, even the things that we know that are time items, like days, weeks, months, and so on, it's not time itself that sets those things. It's actually something else. Right? So what sets time for us? So on one hand, nature. Right? How does nature set time for us? The world turns, it gets dark, it gets light, that's a day. Right, the, 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 the weather changes and then it comes back. That's a, a season. You get a few seasons, you get a year, and so on. Years become decades and millennia and whatever else you get. Right, but all that is because of the nature. But the time itself is indistinguishable. Each second, each minute, uh, there's nothing to it. So, so nature creates certain feelings in time. And then we call it years, but it's really our seeing it. That, that's what happens. Time itself doesn't have it. He says, not only does nature do this, but something else does it as well, and that is the Torah. The Torah says there's a beginning of a year and there's an end of a year. The Torah doesn't just go along with nature. The Torah says, no, it's very important to recognize there are days of a week, days of a week go into Shabbat, then there's weeks, there's months, there's years, all that. The Torah cares a lot about, and there's a lot of halachot and a lot of time that's spent on keeping time. Time is very, very important in halacha. So that's the first thing that Rav Cook wants you to realize, is that time itself isn't what we see it. It's us seeing it that's a very important part of understanding what's happening. He says, okay, if you got that, right, he says, now you, could take, uh, you can understand the next thing. And here I'm going to read a paragraph from Rav Cook. He says like this. Try and listen carefully because you'll see this is why Rav Cook is not so easy to, 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 to follow and to understand. He says, as we move from one period to another period in a period of time, like from year to year, he says, we feel within ourselves a phenomenon of renewal. A part of our life has gone and become a certain past, and we are destined to have a new part of life as a future. Our moral side benefits from this impression of certain time limits. Right? Since we see things in time, we benefit from it, he says. By which we can bring to our mind the account of the past. We can purify it. We can cleanse it. We can remove all of the dross that has attached itself to us by our mistakes and our crimes, by all of our weaknesses, mental and physical, in a manner that these will not add their bad influence on our future lives. And on the other hand, after this purification, we prepare ourselves to receive all the good impressions from the pure and healthy side that has fallen to us during the part of life that we know as the past. Okay, so I don't know if you all got all that, because it took me four times to translate it from Hebrew into that English, and then even that, it's not so simple. But that, I, I did my best, because Rev. Cook is challenging and not so simple. But what Rev. Cook is saying is as follows. He says that being aware that one year is coming to a close and it's ending, and another is beginning, allows us to contemplate who we are. What have we done? What have we experienced in this past year? And then to decide what to keep, what we want to keep, and what we want to change for the future. And if I could, I would use the following analogy. 
Imagine you're moving homes, right? Some of us maybe do it seasonally, but right? imagine you're moving your home. What happens when you move a house? Right? You have to take all your stuff that you have and you gotta put it into boxes and get it to the next place, right? And usually what happens when you do that, right, is you're looking and then what do you do? You go through your stuff. So if you're like me, first thing is throw it out, right? Yvette says, but what if? No, no, we, we throw, right? You wanna throw out a lot of stuff. But the truth is, you shouldn't just throw everything out, right? You should go through a particular process, right? The process should be, am I gonna use this in the next house? Right? That's what you should ask yourself. Right? So what do we do? We go through our stuff as we're packing it up to decide to bring it to the next house. We throw out a bunch of stuff. But something else happens as we're moving home. Right? We also, as we're going through our stuff, what else happens? As if you all move somewhere along the way, right? what happens? You also find something. Right? And what do you find? You find something, right? like what, what you find? You find out your high school yearbook. Right, or your wedding album, or uh, I don't know, it depends who you are, what you got in your house, right? But you find things that you put away a long time ago, right, and you haven't used. But because you're moving and because you're inspecting, you have a chance to think, ah, and now you could take this yearbook or the wedding album, whatever, and you could show it to your kids. You could put it on the coffee table. You could just, oh, you know, wow, I, 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 my guitar, I haven't played my guitar. I can't play guitar for the life, right? But I, I haven't played my guitar in a while. You could take it out. David will take out his hockey stuff, right? Whatever it may be, right? You find what you find, and all of a sudden, it's valuable. It's something, and, and you bring it back into your life. Because you say, this is important to me. Somehow it got pushed to the side, but this is important to me. And one last thing happens, right? Another thing happens as a result of this is it's not just about the object. What inevitably happens, what inevitably happens is you start seeing people, right? Now those people are probably not in your home, right? But you see a picture of someone, right? Now that picture of someone may be gone, right? Like a grandparent, but all of a sudden, you bring that grandparent back into your life. Or an old friend, you pick up the phone, you make a call, or someone that's around, but you're not in touch and you say, you know, I. I have to be more connected to that person. Right? All that happens when you move from place to place. Right? So that's the analogy that I'd like to use that I think Rav Cook is using about Rosh Hashanah. Right? Rosh Hashanah, says Rav Cook, is all about taking a point in time, recognizing the fact that we measure time is arbitrary. It's not arbitrary, it's added. It's put on to us by the Torah for a purpose. And the purpose is you're moving homes, right? The purpose is you need to inspect who you have, right? You have to, you have to say, what's in my life that I gotta get rid of? What do I gotta throw out? You gotta say, who do I gotta connect to, right? You got, these are things that you have to be thinking which you wouldn't otherwise think. You wouldn't be thinking. So it's very interesting. You know, when I started, I said that on Rosh Hashanah, we're not like everybody else, and we're not. Right? Everybody else throws a party. Right, parties, I mean, go to Times Square, right? What happens after a party? It's a hangover, right? It's, uh, there's, not, there's not much to it. You celebrate, you're happy, and okay, on a Jewish level, so maybe we're a little more responsible in our happiness, but at the end of the day, so, so what? It doesn't change it. Right? It's good to be able to say thank you, Hashem, and we have our times and our ways that have, and we do that, but there's something more important that needs to be done, right? What's interesting is, 
we're not ha we're not happy and celebrating, but we're also not something else. Most people look the opposite of happy and celebrating as what? Sad, right? Sad. We're not sad. Now Jews know how to be sad, right? Because we have a day for that, right? We have Tisha B'Av, right? so we do actually do the mourning thing, right? And if that was what was appropriate at the start of the new year, so then, then we would do it. That's not appropriate. In fact, it's a halakha. You're not allowed to cry on Rosh Hashanah. I don't know if you knew that. Right? You're not allowed to cry in Rosh Hashanah. That's why in Rosh Hashanah there's no Anna, there's no Tahanun, there's no sad stuff on Rosh Hashanah. You've got to be far away from the sadness and far away from the happiness. It's not fully happy. It's Yamin Noraim. So what is it? It's days of purpose. It's days of meaning. It's, hey, we measure time, and this is the ultimate measure of time. It's the start of the new year. Right? When we do that, we recognize that the Torah is doing for us something that most of us don't get to do otherwise often enough, and that is we're moving homes. Right? We're getting a chance to take inventory of who we are, what we're about, what we're doing. And that's what the Torah wants us to do. That's why Rosh Hashanah is this unusual type of New Year observance. And so, with that, I put out for us to ask ourselves three questions at this time of year. Okay, three questions at this time of year. The first question is, what part of me do I need to get rid of? Right now, here I'm going to be Besser, right? Besser is this way, he tells his weight joke, right? He says, I got to get rid of a few pounds, right? So, so, okay, it's very nice, and listen, I need to get rid of a few pounds, so maybe that's a good time to think about it, very nice. But the truth is, really, there are more important parts of us that we have to shed, right? It could be we're cynical. It could be... Uh, where uh, overly possessive, could be we're envious, could be we're too quick to anger. Every person's different, but I'll bet every single person here, if they spent five serious minutes, could find something about themselves that they know, hey, I'm moving homes, I'm moving into the next new year, I gotta get rid of this. If they think about it, they can find something. And Rosh Hashanah is the time to say, Let's throw something out. And that's, of course, what I said at the Mehdi Teshuvah is all about. Because change doesn't happen automatically. Change doesn't happen in a second, right? Change takes time. You need to really set yourself on a path. And what's interesting is um, the idea of Teshuvah um, is not, um, it, it, it does, it's not a complete wreck of yourself, right? The word Teshuvah means to return. It's actually a return to your true self is the idea that it's supposed to be. You are essentially good. Right? And um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a great statement that, uh, that Rabbi Eliyah likes to make. He says, uh, you can only change two or three things at once. You can't, you can't change more than that. Right? So you have to find one or two things that you say, hey, this thing about me, it's got to go. And then you got to work on it. So that's, that's part one of what you need to do on Rosh Hashanah. You didn't need me to tell you that. I think everybody knows that. Everybody understands. Um, what I would say is it's not always a, and, and shouldn't always be looked at as a sin per se, right? but actually could be looked at as a part of who I am, a part of my personality, and how do I shed that part of me? Right? So that's part one that we should be trying to think, think, thinking of doing at this time of year, following this moving analogy. Then there's part two. And part two, I think, is maybe more important, which is the positive. 
which is what aspect of me is in me that I have not put out to shine? I'll tell you a story. Right? Story of a, a college student. Right? A college student goes to a no-name college and is not really interested in school. And this college student, because he's not so interested in school, doesn't take calculus, instead takes calligraphy. Right? Like if I have to tell you, like if Flatbush taught calligraphy, I'm gonna get phone calls. Rabbi, where's the standards? What are you doing? What why why are we teaching you know handwriting? What's going on here? Right? And okay, and, and the guy himself probably took the, the course because he didn't want to take calculus. And he moves on. Of course, the guy, some of you probably have figured who I'm talking about, is named Steve Jobs. Right? And Steve Jobs, in, in his, you know, towards the end of his life, when asked, what's the most important class you ever took? He says, calligraphy. He says, in that calligraphy course, I began to understand the concept of style and writing and what, what different fonts mean. Says, and when we were making the iPhone, it really helped me figure out what we needed to be doing. Right? And so this is an example of someone who took something out from, that he had, that he possessed, that he didn't realize what it was worth, right? And he, at some point in his life, he took it out and he made it sharp. Right? And, and I believe that all of us have a lot of these things within us. We tend to think that well, our toolkits that we need in life are very small things, very limited, and basically the same thing that everybody else has. But the reality probably is that there are unique, crazy little things that we tucked away somewhere that we would never think it's really important, and they're hugely important. And like when we're moving the house, we just have to say, oh, look at this, it's so valuable. I, I forgot I could even have this. I forgot that I could do this. And to take it out and to let it shine. And that's something that only happens if you think about these things from time to time, and Rosh Hashanah is forcing us to do that. Now it's the last one. And the last one is the person. I was trying to make a list of how many people I know. And I'm probably worse than most people in the sense that I know many more than 10,000 people. Because I work at a school and every year it's 200 new people and whatever. And there was for, for 10 years, this is true, for 10 years, if I saw a face on the street, I could tell you, um, I could tell you that student's name or graduate's name is such and such, class of 2000, what have you, and class 402, 2N, whatever, 2HN, or whatever it may be. Right? I was able to, to do that. It's 20 years, so I'm not as pretty much my brain started exploding, and I can't do that as much anymore. Um, but what's true of me is, is true of most people, which is we know lots and lots and lots of people. And what ends up happening to most of the people that we know is they fade into the background. You can only handle so many people in your forefront for such a long time. But could we find one person that faded into the background that could make us better, that could be more significant to us? I'll tell you another name of a person. It's a story that if you don't know, you should know. Uh, her name is a woman who was, for most of her life, uh, not very well known. Her name was Anne Scheiber. Anyone ever hear of this person, Anne Scheiber? Anyone? Nobody heard of her. You should. You're going to you're gonna have to you can remember her after the story. Okay, Anne Scheiber uh, lived a mostly non, 
non-exciting life, except for a few points. She did live to 101, uh, which, you know, the truth these days, 101 is like not so crazy anymore, right? So that's something, that's not why I'm telling you the story. Anne Shiver was a Jewish woman, lived in uh, New York, um, and in the 30s, 1930s I'm talking about now, uh, so a little less than 100 years ago, she took her savings, which she had saved up a substantial amount of money at the time, about $3,000, and she gave it to her brother, I forget his name, to invest, right? And um, the brother was a decent investor, started to go well, but in the 30s, you know, tanked, zero. Went to, lost all the money. She was very upset about that. Um, and it took her some time, so in the 40s, she decided she was gonna invest on her own. And um, she saved $5,000, which is a substantial amount of money. She had a very nondescript job. Uh, she was an auditor for the IRS, uh, which means that she would come into your office, and she was known to be a pretty ferocious auditor. She would come into your office and say, I need to see your books, right? And then she would look at you and say, no, no, the real books, right? And like that's the story that they tell about her. Um, she never got a promotion. She was always at that basic level. Um, and she said, I'm going to invest on my own. And she started investing on her own. And uh, she had a strategy, simple strategy. Only buy big, well-known companies. She would never buy more than 100 shares at a time. Right? So we're not talking big quantities. When she died in, uh, I want to say, 1996, she decided to hand over whatever she made to Yeshiva University, $22 million. At, at that time, the largest gift ever to Yeshiva University. Uh, someone gave $100 million in, in 2006. Um, but uh, $22 million. Right? Her whole life, she had no children. She had not many friends. Um, she didn't like her family so much, she didn't give them any. Um, and, but, but there's a lot you can learn from this story, right? But what strikes me about her is there was this person walking around for years, right, that was sitting on $22 million, right, and no one said boo to her. Why you had no idea that she was giving them this money until after she died. They got a call from a lawyer about a person they didn't meet, they didn't know. And right, I could just hear, right, like, you know, some of Flatbush's fundraisers saying, okay, wait, who can we find that's you know, like <laughs> sitting on, 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 how do we do this? How do we get a piece? Right, which is good. It's good to have fundraisers that think that way, right? But, but my point is that it's not about the money, right? I mean, it's great if you could, find some, if, if you could, if you could find 22 million, great, right? But that's not the point. The point is there are so many people that are hiding in plain sight in our lives that have untapped what I'll call wealth. There are people that are there that we pass by every day that are in our box in our basement, which is just a metaphor for our lives, who, if we would pick up the phone, if we would reach out, if we would have a lunch, if we would something with that person, they could enrich our lives in ways that are beyond what we can comprehend. And it's just upon us to be able to take the time and say, who's in my life that I've ignored? It's a lot of people. You can't get all of them. But find one. Find one this year. 
at Rosh Hashanah and say, let me reintroduce one person in my life who's going to make a difference. Maybe I'll make a difference for them and maybe I should have that angle as opposed to what it does for me. But if it helps motivate you, so it, 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 it is for you and it can be for you. So, just to summarize all that we've done tonight, um, Rosh Hashanah is very different. Only the Jews have something like this. No one else does New Year this way. And Rav Cook has this revolutionary way of thinking about it, which is, hey, what's time all about? It's nothing. It's not even there. It's our construct. So if the Torah is creating it, it must be doing it for a reason. And so when it's happening, he says, look at it like, and this is my paraphrase, look at it like you're moving homes. And you have to ask yourselves, what do you want to take with you? There's some things you want to shed. That's the easy part. You know what you want to get rid of. But there are parts of you that you forgot that you have that are incredibly valuable if you just take it out of the box, if you just take it out of the basement or the attic and put it on the coffee table and let it sharpen. And maybe most importantly, use this opportunity to think about the people that are in your lives, that are not in your lives, that could be in your lives, and what difference they could make. I think if we think that way, we could really have a Shana Toba in Thank you so much. It's not really a questions type thing, so. Anyone have comments? Anyone want to share anything? <laughs> Eddie, it sounds good.